We're looking at the book of Acts today, chapter 1, the choosing of Matthias. And we've already looked at the promise of the coming of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. And today we're going to look at the choosing of Matthias. We looked at the brief 40-day ministry of Christ and his uh, ascension to heaven. He went away, said he'll come back the same way to the same place. That's going to be a great day. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verse 16 in a few moments. Luke, as you know, is a Gentile. He was not a Jew. Uh, he's a Gentile, a Greek. He was a physician, a doctor, and he uh, traveled with Paul on his journeys, wrote the two largest New Testament book. We know this is the second largest. Uh, Luke is the first. He was not one of the 12, so he's kind of an outsider. But boy, is he a great writer. And under the inspiration of God, great, gave us some great stuff. Remember, the book of Acts is a bridge book. It connects the epistles and the gospels. It connects the law and the grace. It connects the synagogue and the church. They're still going to the synagogue. They're about to be thrown out. And the church is being established. It's in its infancy. And so they're in between. They're still trying to keep the law. They're not sure of what to do. Peter's still not eating pork and catfish and, and uh, shrimp until he has that vision uh, in Acts and he learns that he can eat that stuff and does eat it. But I mean, they're in that transition period. The apostles are still alive. They're raising dead people. And it just, just uh, great stuff going on. And this is all about the history of the church. Let's stand and read verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. And we're going to study these last verses 12 through 26, but we're going to read verse 16. Peter gets up to preach, and he says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Boy, Judas was one of the leaders, wasn't he? Handled the money. Here it says he's one of the guides. And there's a word there. We'll explain what it means later. But here, what a, what a powerful statement. Remember, Luke is writing. He's writing about Peter's sermon. He's giving uh, credibility to David's prophecy of the Holy Spirit about Judas's betrayal and how they need to replace him. That's what this verse is saying. Bless us, Lord, as we take a look in your book for a walk in this world. We need you every moment of every day. We certainly need you this hour. We ask you to speak to hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We pick up in verse 12. And we know this is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. They returned, they returned that, then they returned there unto Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is uh, uh, from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. What's a Sabbath day's journey? That's about 3,000 feet. It's 2,000 cubits. Uh, cubit was from the uh, elbow uh, to the end of the hand, about 18 inches for a Jewish man. And that's how they measured things by cubits. And it was a 3,000 cubic journey. Today, that would be about a half a mile. It's all you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath was a half a mile. Now, you think about today, people who say, well, we still keep the law. And they get in their cars and they drive to church. Now, there's fire in the pistons of a car. They weren't allowed to build a fire on the Sabbath day. 
They were allowed to keep one going, but they weren't allowed to start one. When you start your car, you know what you do? You crank up fire in the pistons. And they drive to church, and there's not an Adventist church within a half a mile of every Seventh-day Adventist, so they're breaking the law there. And I'm not picking on them. I have a lot of people that I know that are saved people who are Adventists, but we don't agree that we need to keep the law anymore. We're free from that. We can eat things. They don't think they can eat them, but they're free to eat. And you can read 1 Timothy chapter 4 later on what it says about people who teach that you can't eat meat. You can look at that later. But anyway, I don't want to get off the subject, and I just did. So here they're about a half a day's journey in verse 13, and the Bible says they were come in uh, to the original language, makes it clear the upper room is the one where they had met, the disciples had met on a regular basis. Remember, this is where they put Dorcas's body. Later, we'll see that in Acts, uh, in the upper room. And they're there in the upper room, and here's a list of quite a few of the disciples, not all. And it says here in the text that the disciples were there, and the women, and Mary, and Jesus' brethren. Remember, they weren't saved till after his resurrection. Remember, two of, the God, two of the writers of your New Testament books, James and Jude, were not saved until Jesus rose from the dead. Then they finally believed. And so they're, they're named here, or at least Jude is. And, and they're, they're all here. They're gathered together. Here's Simon the Zealot. We know about the Zealots. They were the freedom fighters that hated the Romans. They'd sneak down at night and kill Roman soldiers. They'd slit their throats and they'd flee back. They originally from a, were from a place called Gamla. And Gamla was a, 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 like a subdivision, but much bigger, built on the side of a hill. When you walk out your front door, you're on the, the roof of the people below you. And they built on this hillside. That's where they lived. But when Rome started to follow them home, they decided to hide and they'd flee up to the Masada, the great fortress there. Maybe one day you can visit that and they'd hide out there. And the Romans couldn't get to them. The Zealots had zeal and they hated Romans. One day the Romans took years for them to get up there. Finally they got up there, they built a ramp and they burnt the wall, the, 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 uh, the wooden wall that protected uh, the Zealots and wouldn't let them in. And that wall burnt so they could come in and kill the Zealots. When they got up there, they didn't have anybody to kill because the zealots all jumped over the edge to their death. They would not surrender to Rome. And so that's why they're called the zealots. So Simon was there. And of course, most of the other disciples there, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that inner circle went with Jesus three times when the others weren't allowed to go. And you can read that later. But they all, in verse 14, they're all here together. And Judas, who's uh, the brother of James, also called Thaddeus, was there. And it says in verse 14, they continued with one accord in prayer. That means in unity. It doesn't mean a Honda Accord, too many for the Accord. Had all the women and the disciples and the brethren there. But uh, you can hardly get this many people in unity. And here they are. And the, notice the word continued in prayer. They'd been praying all along. Why? They, they're waiting for the coming of the Spirit. And while they're waiting, they're going to choose a replacement for Judas because they want to fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. So they're waiting here. They're all together. And Peter gets up and he preaches to about 120 other followers who were not in this meeting but were there. And he's telling them what they're meeting about and he preaches to them in verse 16. And he's preaching, and we can put on the screen here in this next verse, Psalm 41, 9. If you put that up there. But he's preaching to them about fulfilling Psalm 41.9. And that's what we call a prophetic messianic psalm. What, what, what I mean by that is Psalm 41 is all about 
the life of David. And in David's life, his Ahithophel, his faithful confidant, servant, spy, betrayed him. And he went over and told everything, all of David's secrets to David's son Absalom, who was trying to take over uh, the country. And of course, as you know, many times sons took over countries and killed their own fathers. Some fathers and mothers killed their own children to keep them from taking the throne. That's how brutal it was. And so his faithful man, Ahithophel, uh, betrayed him right near where, where we find Judas betrayed Jesus, same area. And so this psalm prophesied that there would be a replacement. And I'll turn with me, if you will, to Acts, to Acts, excuse me, Psalm 109, and we'll come back to Acts in a moment. Psalm 109. I want you to see this passage. Another passage about that same incident. Talking about Judas. And this is an interesting psalm. It's called an imprecatory psalm. Sometimes they would write psalms about getting vengeance, but they always left it up to God. It's interesting, David had Saul trying to kill him, throwing spears at him, chasing him. David's hiding in caves. Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's best friend. David was a teenager. Jonathan was in his 40s. The common, common denominator in their friendship was the Lord. They both loved the Lord. But David was hiding for his life, but he never retaliated against Saul. At least two times he had an opportunity to kill Saul. One time he just cut a part of his garment off. And he just let him know that I could get even, but I'm not. He never wanted to touch God's anointed king. And he wouldn't. And, but here he writes this psalm. David writes this. And you pick up here. We're going to look at verse 8, but several other verses we're going to look at. He talks here in verse 6 about setting a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right side. Remember Job and Zechariah and Joshua all talk about First Chronicles, about Satan being there as an adversary accusing brethren. And here he says, when he shall be judged, let him be condemned and let his prayer become sin. He's talking about judgment and retribution and he's really saying it needs to be done, but he's not going to do it. Let his days be few and let another take his office. That's verse 8. That's about Judas, about Judas Iscariot. It's actually about Ahithophel, but the psalm is quoted in the New Testament about Judas Iscariot. And certainly he would reap what he had sown. And so Peter is preaching here back in Acts chapter 1, and we see Peter, I'm going too fast, slow down. We find here in Acts chapter 1, Peter is preaching. And he's saying here in chapter 1, verse 16, we have to fulfill that prophecy, the ones we just read. We have to find a replacement. Someone else needs to take Judas's office because he was one of the leaders and he's gone now. He's saying that will fulfill Psalm 109 and Psalm 41, which he partially quotes. And so he's preaching to about 120 people in verse 17. And it, in verses 16 and following, 120 people are, are mentioned in verse 15. He's preaching to 120. Verse 17 says here, Judas was numbered with us. Well, we're going to look on the screen now. If you can go down to John, this verse is on the screen, the next one. We notice that it's a mentioning here Judas not being saved. Look at verse 71. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him being one of the twelve. Um, and I think it says that, but back up. Verse 64, the top one. But the same hour, 
I can't read that from here. I'm sorry. Font's not big enough for my eyes without glasses, so I'm going to turn there in John 6. But you can see it up there, and you probably have glasses to put on or distance glasses. But look what it says here. In chapter 6, verse 64, it says, <clears throat> But there are some of you that believe not. First line. Who's he talking about in the upper room? Verse 71, Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. The last line's not on there because of her exit sign in the door frame. He said, have I not chosen 12, but one of you is a devil, meaning he's controlled by a demon. So Peter says that Judas was numbered with them. He wasn't saved, but uh, he, was, he was numbered with them, and we know he betrayed the Lord. And we know that his sin was exposed, and he committed suicide. What a tragedy. He had such a great opportunity to be saved and never was. Think of that. With Jesus all those years. And he went out, and we know that he killed himself. And there's different ideas. Some say he killed himself near the area where he bought a plot of land. Others say near the valley of Hinnom, which we get our word Gehenna from. Gehenna is one of the words we use for hell. And if you go on the eastern gate of the city and you go out the back door, you find the valley of Gehenna, and they burned all the garbage there. And they kept the fire going year-round. And some say he bought, bought a, plant, a plot of land, excuse me, near that valley or, uh, you know, on the other end of that valley. What a, what a type there, but if that's true. And we read different books on tradition. But Judas, of course, you know, went to hell. And he, he, he's, he's, he's obviously utilized of the devil. In verse, verses back to our text, and we find in verse 18, For this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Now we find him weeping and going out and killing himself, but he never repented. True repentance is when you are broken because of your sin, not because you got caught. Everybody that gets caught, I'm sorry. But a believer knows he's wrong while he's sinning. And if he's truly right with God, what will he do? He'll repent when God brings it to his attention that he's under the judgment of God, he feels guilty. He knows he sinned. What does he do? He repents. That's what a child of God does. But people of the world repent, repent. Oh, I'm so sorry, because they're exposed and caught. So Judas gets caught. He's exposed now. He knows Jesus is going to know. And, and, of course, he betrayed him with a kiss. And now he's humiliated, and he goes out, and he commits suicide. Verse 18 says that the, his guts... His bowels gushed out, meaning his guts. That's the word used for guts. Think of that. Now, the Gospels say he hung himself. So, Pastor, how do we justify these two? Scholars tell us that what this probably means is one of two things. He either ran off the edge of a cliff hanging from a tree, which they did. It would make it quick and easy. The neck would snap. And slam back into some sharp rocks. Others say he just hung there for a long time till his guts fell out down in the valley below. I don't know. But what a tragic end to a man who had three and a half years with the Lord Jesus. You know, the Bible says if you're in a place of opportunity, it'll be worse for you than it would be for Sodom and Gomorrah to hear the gospel and reject the Lord. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, I would trust Christ. But here, again, he hangs himself. And he hangs himself, the Bible says, uh, they named the field, uh, the, the field of blood because of Judas. 
Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms. We see it again up there on the screen, Psalm 69, if we can put that up there. Again, read in the Psalms, and we're quoting that. Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. And his, his bishopric, which means office, let another take. It's actually the Greek word episcopal, episcopal. We get our word episcopal from it. He was a leading man among the 12. He handled the money, and here it says he was a leader. And remember when they murmured about Mary using money to anoint Jesus? It was him, we believe, that led the way in murmuring about money. But Psalm 109.8, let his days be few and let another take his office. That does not apply to our president. Uh, let his days be few and another take his office. And it's never applied to any president, no matter which side you're on. But I've heard that used. Uh, people have said that's, that's a verse for our president. But anyway, here he is. And uh, he's betrayed the Lord, and now he's committed suicide. Verse 21, and these men accompanied with the Lord and went in and among, among us, and we know they were a witness, verse 22, of his resurrection. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Christ. And remember, the apostles were all taught by Christ. Now you say, well, Paul, you know, Paul was an apostle. Yes, he was called by God, by Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. He saw the Lord. And then we find that Paul went to the desert in Galatians 1 for several years and reappeared later. And most scholars believe the Holy Spirit taught him in the desert. Just like Jesus taught the others, he was taught by God. But here are the apostles, the ones who had seen the resurrected Christ. And they're trying to, to figure out who should be the apostle. And in verse 23, they appointed two people. And they put them on a ballot. They're going to figure out which one of these guys should replace Judas. And this is where it gets interesting because they made decisions in a way that we wouldn't make decisions today. And I'm going to tell you how we should make the decisions, but we'll also talk about how they did. They appointed these two. Remember, first of all, they had continued in prayer, backing up. I believe it's verse 14. They continued in prayer in one accord. So they had been praying all along. Who do we get to replace Judas? He handled the money. He was pretty smart. He knew the, some of the people in the courts. And we need somebody to replace Judas. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And they picked these two people. Joseph, called Barsabbas, which is an Aramaic term meaning son of Sabbath. His Latin name was Justice and they picked Matthias, who meant gift of Yahweh, and they chose him. We'll see how they chose him in a minute. He was martyred in Ethiopia. All the apostles except old John were, were murdered, killed for their faith. We don't understand persecution like they understood it, right? And so they, they, they prayed about this. In verse 24, and they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, knowest the hearts of all men. You know, we don't know people's hearts. Sometimes someone will say, well, he has a good heart or she has a good heart. Well, you really don't know that. I was telling our Wednesday night crowd, if we all could see each other's hearts, we wouldn't be here this morning. We'd say, oh, I know, Pastor, what he thought about yesterday. And I, I know his thoughts and I know his heart. The only good thing about my heart is, is the Lord's redeemed me and he's taken up residence inside. But the Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. And so when you say, well, I know his heart, he's a good man, a good heart. Aren't all of us shocked when we find out the truth about some of our friends and people and neighbors? We're like, whoa, I thought that was a good person. I thought they were great. And then we find out 
There were some things in their heart that weren't right. And so they say, God, please help us. You know the hearts of men. So they prayed, and now they're depending on God for direction. They're saying, God, we, we really need help. Who do we choose? Show us who should be the apostle. Judas, it says here, fell by transgression. That means he, the next verse, he literally crossed the line, willingly crossed the line. And he went to his own place. So what did they do? Well, this is interesting. They cast lots. Can you imagine that? What if we made decisions today? We cast lots. How'd they do it? Well, they put stones in an urn and they would roll this thing around and the stone that came out, that would tell them who to choose. It's interesting because going way back to the law, Leviticus allowed, Leviticus chapter uh, 16 allowed for the use of lots to make decisions, which is like throwing dice. It's, it's all it is. It's like gambling. And under the law, it was allowed, and it was used by Joshua. Remember, an AI. Someone stole the treasure, and they wanted to know who. So they put the 12 tribes, stones, one for each tribe, in an urn, and they spun it around, and the tribe came out. Now they have the tribe. And then they put the family heads, patriarchs, and they figured out it was Achan who had stolen the treasure, all by lots. We don't make decisions that way today, and I'm glad we don't. There are probably a few low IQ people that think, well, I'll roll the dice and decide whether to do this or not or whatever, but that's not a wise way to make decisions. But God had ordained this. Look at Proverbs chapter 16. I'm going to turn there. You can look see it on the screen. But Proverbs chapter 16 is a verse you ought to mark in your Bible <clears throat> because it says here, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. See, God was sovereign and so sovereign that back in that era, the age of the apostles, I mean, starting going way back to Moses, all the way up to the age of the apostles through the law, through the founding of the church, all that era, God allowed them to make decisions by casting lots. And what happened? God showed he's sovereign. The decisions were correct because God controlled even the casting of the lots. Isn't that something? We wouldn't do that today, but that's what they did. They cast lots. It was okay. It was allowed by God, utilized by Joshua, approved in the law, and they did it. But this is the last time we find it in all of Scripture. You don't find it in the church epistles. Romans and Revelation are the church epistles. You'll never find it in there. How do we make decisions today? Well, it's a little bit different, isn't it? So here, they cast lots, and they chose Matthias, and he's numbered with the 11 apostles. And in chapter 6, they go back to being called the 12 again. So they had examined candidates and eliminated all but these two. And Paul, of course, we know was chosen by the Lord. And uh, here Judas is replaced. We know that Barnabas was also a Gentile, an apostle to the Gentiles. James later died. So there's speculation on who replaced James. We don't have that answer. He was killed. But, but we know that they used lots during this time to make decisions. How do we make decisions? Several ways. First of all, we learned from them they had prayed, continued in prayer, and prayed and prayed and prayed. They waited for unity. And then they waited for direction from the Lord. They said, we need to know their hearts, Lord. But finally they cast lots. We don't do that. What do we do, Pastor, when we make decisions? Well, we pray. And we pray. We pray some more. 
We seek the Lord's face. And whenever you make a decision, you need to make sure the decision you make lines up with the Word of God. In other words, if what you're doing doesn't match Scripture, it's going to violate Scripture, that is not of God. I had a lady in Panama years ago tell me she made a decision to marry this guy. And, you know, he wasn't a Christian, but she, God led her to, to marry him. She knows that was the case. I said, the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Uh, that guy's not a believer, and you're a believer, and it's not God's will. And, of course, their marriage didn't last. She made a decision apart from the Word of God. Sometimes people marry lost people and that person gets saved. Praise God for that. But don't violate Scripture when you make a decision. You pray about it and you pray about it. You seek God's direction. Make sure it lines up with Scripture. And then finally, the third thing you need to look for is peace. The Bible said, let the peace of God rule your heart, Colossians. Rule your heart, the peace. When you have any turmoil inside of your heart, you can talk to everyone around you and get them to say, well, that's a good decision. But if you don't have peace in here, you know you're wrong. The Holy Spirit's saying it's not a good car to buy. It's not a good decision to make. And if you don't listen to them and you make it when you have turmoil, it's not going to be a good decision. You can talk everyone into how great of a decision you made, but when you lay down at night and you are in turmoil and troubled about what you're about to do, you know that's the Holy Spirit saying, don't do it, stop. The word rule, let the peace of God rule, is a word we get our word umpire from it. What does an umpire do? He makes the calls. And when you have peace, you can do it. When you don't, don't do it. And there's a fourth thing that we don't always experience, but... Quite often, God will validate his plan by a circumstance. Things will happen to, to let you know this is the right decision. Isn't that great when that happens? That's, that's not a, it's not like casting lots and gambling to make a decision. But God comes back and he gives you peace and then he opens up doors and says, look here. I actually thought when I was called to preach there was a conspiracy of churches. <laughs> I accused my father-in-law of talking to these pastors and churches because almost the next day after I was called to preach and I surrendered to preach, my phone began to ring and people began to ask me to come and present my ministry. Now, how many missionaries get a call to come and present a ministry? I hadn't even preached. I was a Sunday school teacher, a youth guy. I hadn't preached. And now churches want me to come and share my ministry. I ended up preaching in each of those churches and, and ended up, they all supported me. And I went to my father and I said, you did that. There's no way all those churches would be calling me. I'm a 20-something-year-old, inexperienced guy, and they're calling me and having me come. What was that, folks? It was God saying, I've opened up doors for you, son. Just step through them. This is my plan. It's not a conspiracy. I thought it was. What's going on here? I've never been asked to go to a church and speak. Boom, 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 all of a sudden. And in 10 months, I had enough support to go to Panama to start a church to the military. In 10 months. Boy, if that's not God just kind of pushing me through. I kept saying, I don't know. I, I started out wanting to go to Puerto Rico. I, I didn't plan on going to Panama. And the church in Puerto Rico, my father-in-law had started. I thought, well, I'll take that church. It's an already established church. I won't have to start one, and I'll just slide in there and be my first pastor. It didn't work that way. They called some other guy, those bunch of bums. <laughs> so I have this prayer card, Puerto Rico, and I'm not going to Puerto Rico. 
And I get a call. Uh, this guy in Panama said, listen, we need a church on the Atlantic side. I said, again, it's a conspiracy. My father-in-law is an hour and a half from there. He's on the Pacific side. So I know he's, he didn't have anything to do with it. So this guy calls, can you come over and just spend a few days here? And I went and spent a week in Panama, Central America, on the Atlantic side. And I mean, people got saved, and I did this Bible study, and they just asked me to come back. And I left there thinking, again, somebody's doing this. Somebody was doing that. It was the Lord. Sometimes, thank God, the circumstances validate the decision God has given us. But you can't just wait around for circumstances. Well, if the weather's right, I'll go to church this morning. I'm not sure if it's God's will. No, that's not how you live your life. And sometimes the circumstances aren't there ahead of time. But boy, I love what God does once we step out by faith and make a decision. You know how many times I haven't wanted to go to church? Hundreds of times. Whenever I've got to church, arrived at church, and sat through a service, I always thought, I'm so glad I'm here. Because that was the song I needed, or the message, or the testimony. Or I, oh, and you just had that peace that comes all over you. I never meet a Christian who's guilty sitting in church. I meet sinners who are guilty sitting in church. Because <laughs> it's pretty uncomfortable sitting under preaching when you're not saved. But when Christians get here and get in their pew, they have that sense of, you know, I know I'm doing the right thing. Now, if you get in the flash and you get mad at somebody, I'm not going back to that church, that's not peace, and that's not God's guidance. That's your old nature. So you need to get things right. And if you come to church and you're mad at your spouse, you need to apologize in the car to each other. Get here. Sometimes you need to call someone and say, I'm sorry, because you want that sweet fellowship and you want to be open to God's leadership in your life. This morning, and I've been praying this a lot, Lord, I want to finish my life you know, well, I, I, I pray and I pray and I talk to the Lord. He guides me, but I read about Abraham, a friend of God. And I read about David before he fell morally, who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. And I read about John who said, I'm the one Jesus loved. And I, and I say, I want to be like those guys. Help me, Lord. I'm praying. Can you help me? And, uh, you know, the Lord wants to be close with us as well. But you know what he wants? He wants us to desire him. And if you're looking to make big decisions and you're not in fellowship with the Lord and you're not desiring that intimate closeness with him, then you're going to make one bad decision after another. Amen. I'll tell you some of the dumbest decisions made in our planet, in our world, are made by Christians out of God's will. Because of Satan's constantly, Satan's pumping things in your mind. He's discouraging you. And you're, you're just, you don't know God's direction. And, and folks, we need God's direction. They continued in prayer. They sought God's will. They listened to that sweet, small voice. And if anything conflicted with Scripture, then they would not make that decision. I think of our teenagers over here. And, and I think of the decisions they're all going to be making. Morally, you all will make decisions as to whether to sleep with someone outside of marriage or not. Guys, you think about it every day, all day long, you think about girls. I understand. I was there once. And guess, I got news for you. That's not going to change. Uh, you know, we, we battle with that. My father-in-law was in his 80s. I said, Dad, is there ever a time where you stop thinking those thoughts? He said, no, son. 
you'll think those thoughts all your life. We battle that as men. And you young boys battle that. And you girls sometimes battle with your insecurities, wanting to feel loved. And you think that guy loves you. And if I give myself to him, it's all going to be okay. No, it's not. The Word of God says wait. Wait until you're married. And you'll never regret waiting. I've never met someone who said, well, uh, you know, we're virgins. We're so happy we waited till this day. I've never met somebody say, you know, I, I wish I'd slept with a bunch of people before this day. Of course not. Why? Because we know that's always tragic. And if you've made a mistake, God will forgive you, thank God. But be people who seek purity in your Christian walk. The Bible said to avoid fornication, get married. The Bible says, this is the will of God that you abstain from fornication which is sex outside of marriage. And so there's so many decisions as young people you're making. Even as old people, we make decisions. We need God's guidance. I don't care how old you are. When you're 90 years old, you still need to seek God's direction. You need God's guidance. Have one of our gentlemen attending, Ted, he's 88 years old. He said, the Lord's guided into our church. He's going to join our church. He's been sick for two weeks. I'm wondering if the circumstances will help him to think otherwise. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to join now. I've been sick every week since I decided to join. But at 88 years old, still seeking God's direction in his life. Still wants to be at the right church. Still wants to live the right life. Hey, we make decisions every day. And each day we are capable of making a decision that will ruin our family, our testimony, harm our church. You know, one of the reasons I try hard to live for God is I think, if I mess up, what are my boys going to do? You know, if I just decide to throw in the towel, go back to my old self, what's going to happen to my kids and my grandkids? See, think of the consequences. What are your parents going to think of you, young people? What are your church people going to think of you? I'll never forget one time I was going into an establishment I was a teenager, and my youth pastor drove by up in Lansing, Michigan, and he hollered, hey, Dan, and I'm going into a place I shouldn't have gone into. Oh, that was so convicting. He was concerned about my direction, and I didn't have much because I wasn't listening to the Lord. Listen to the Lord and listen to what I have to say this morning because it's based on God's Word. Decisions, even when you think they're small, they can be huge. The, the phone calls you make, the, the, the reaching out to people. Sometimes it's best just to wait on the Lord. Even in little things like, should I call this person up? Should I, should I respond to this? Today, with all the confusion, and now you know what we're going to have is all this artificial intelligence. You're going to get voices from people that you know the voice, and they're going to say, hey, I need some money. Could you send it to this account? And you're going to think this is your child or something. And all this stuff. Deception. That's Satan's plan. Deception. He's a liar and the father of lies. He's lying to you young people every day. He's lying to you middle-aged people. He's lying to the old people every day because that's the way he operates. And the only direction that makes sense is this right here. And, and the peace from God through his word, that's the only way we should make decisions. When I follow the Lord, I always make good decisions. When I follow Dan to please my flesh, I make bad decisions. Even in the little things in life, the little tiny things we decide are vitally important to us. Listen, make the right decisions 
And the first right decision is to trust Jesus Christ as your savior. If you've never been born again, you need to be born again. I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you're a church member and you've taken communion. I don't care. Met someone just recently. They said, well, my grandmother took me to church. I said, well, that's really not what I was asking you. Have you truly been born again? Is, does the Lord live in your life? If not, that's the first important decision spiritually you're going to make. You need to make that one right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the direction that you gave the disciples, the apostles, even though you had them cast lots to decide. We now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. They didn't have that. We do. And Lord, we thank you for that opportunity to listen to that still small voice of the Holy Spirit of the Trinity to guide us in making these decisions. And Lord, he stands at the doors of all the Christians this morning and he says to the Christians today, I stand at the door and knock. I want to fellowship with you. Open the door and let me in. And he speaks to sinners today. The Holy Spirit says you need to be born again. And I pray that we'll respond accordingly. Bless now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.